Well, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Decision-Making. And the subtitle is Decisions Determine Your Life. So the first thing that we need to look at is how do decisions arise? And the first part of the process is that there is the appreciation of a need. And with the appreciation of a need arises a decision. And from that decision comes a resolution, a resolve to enact something or other. And the final step is the actual action itself. And all four need to be in place. So sometimes the need is not clearly seen. It's like the Boy Scout dragging the little old lady across the road who doesn't want to go across the road. So in that situation, the need is not clearly seen and the resultant action is incorrect. Sometimes the need is clearly seen, but the decision is unsteady or it's reversed. So this would be like seeing somebody coming at the side of the road and the decision is unsteady, let's say, and we say, will I or won't I or will I or won't I? At this stage, you're about a mile past the person, and it's too late to enact the whole thing. Or you might decide, and then you reverse it, saying, well, it could be a serial killer, so better to drive on. There may be the appreciation of the need, there may be a decision, but then the resolution itself is weak. And this is like somebody inviting you to a party. You say yes. And then you say, I've tried to be there. This gives you about a 25% chance of arriving. And then there may be the need, seen clearly, the decision is sharp, the resolution is clear, but the action is not completed. And I'm sure our houses are full of things which were started but not completed. So all needs to be finely tuned and precisely executed or else the outcome is changed, i.e. our lives are changed. And to tell you a humorous, but at the same time serious story, when I was 24, I found myself in this discotheque on a Saturday night. I was on one side of the dance floor, and I looked across this large expanse of a dance floor, and I saw this absolutely beautiful young woman. So the need was clear to me, and... I decided I was going to ask her up to dance. But then a sort of a fatal hesitation arose. And I thought, well, you know, is she too good for me? Better be careful here, lower your standards type thoughts began to arise in my mind. And I hesitated for about 10 seconds. And then I reversed the decision and I sort of strode towards her. And when I got in with about two feet of her, somebody else who was not as shy as I was moved in ahead of me and asked her up to dance. So there I was, like a twit, standing on the dance floor with no partner. And in order to avoid any further embarrassment, I immediately swerved to the right and asked the first person up to dance without even looking at them. And that lady is my wife. <laughs> and as I remind her, on appropriate occasions, that if I'd only been 10 seconds quicker, my whole life would have been different. <laughs> so, now, 
there are many, many, many important decisions we make. And I've just selected ten of them, and there are hundreds, but there are ten which we just very, very briefly consider tonight. And how you decide on any one of these will completely change your life. So the first one is either the philosophical or the religious question. In philosophical terms, who or what am I in truth? Or in religious terms, is there a God? And how I answer, who am I or what am I? Do I answer that I'm just a, merely a body? Or am I a body and mind? Or a body, mind and heart? Or a body, mind, heart and spirit? Will completely determine how I live my life. If I answer the question that there is no God or that there is a God, that will completely change my outlook on life. If I come to the answer that there is no God, then I will determine that I am answerable to nobody. If I determine that there is a God, well then I know that one day I will be asked to account for my life, how I spent my time and what I did with it. So that's the first question. The second question that everybody needs to answer is, what is the ultimate aim of my life? And if I could read part of an answer from a man referred to as the Shankaracharya, this is the man that the school has put its questions to. And part of his answer says, in the worldly setup, people go to work and get their wages. The wages are used to buy goods they need. Goods are bought and used for pleasure. But pleasure is not the same as the peace of the self or contentment in liberation. Wages, goods, and derived pleasures do not ultimately bring in the peace of the self. People in general become involved in the money they earn, the goods they possess, or the type of pleasures at which they aim and so miss the ultimate aim of the peace of the self. So we have to decide what is the ultimate aim of my life and how long each day are you actually aiming at it? And what do you abandon it for every day? The third decision is what is the essential nature of this creation? And one can decide that this creation is lawful, harmonious, full of abundance, that it's happy and completely just. And if that's the case, one will lead a particular life. Or one can decide that it's competitive, accumulative, with scarcity of resources, that there is good luck, bad luck, and great injustice and then one's life would be completely different. The fourth decision is, are you going to accept or resist your life and the events therein? Are you going to accept that you're not in control? You cannot determine that you will wake up tomorrow morning. Do you accept death as easily as you accept birth, since both must happen? Do you accept that whatever goes up must come down? 
Do you accept that all relationships are subject to change? Children will grow up and go their own way. Or do you resist these things? The fifth decision is under whose or what authority will I live? i.e., what do I refer my actions to when I am making a decision as to what to enact? Do my feelings dominate my decisions? Do my thoughts, or is it my past experience? Or is it the authority of true principle? Do I refer to scripture or the words of the wise? So whatever I decide is the source of my authority will determine my life. The sixth decision is what sort of a man or a woman am I going to be? For example, am I going to be a man of my word? Am I going to be a good man, a just man, a contented man, a man of reason or a man of love, a man of action, a man with vision? A man you could trust, a generous man, a man who gave his all, a brave man. What are they going to write on your gravestone? This is a decision. The seventh decision, what am I going to contribute to this world? Or what am I going to take from it for myself? And there's a very simple story which illustrates this. And it's known as the Savannah story. And a version of it goes like this. That there was this great plain or this great land where nobody lived. And the land was extremely fertile. And a settler with his family came upon this land. And he settled down. And he was a farmer. And so he could grow vast quantities of food. Food for thousands of people but he was a, a very poor house builder, so his house was very simple and crude. And the clothes they wore, again, were very crude, and because there was no doctor in the vicinity, illnesses either killed them off or were prolonged. But there was an abundance of food. Anyway, another settler came into the district, and this settler was a house builder. And the house builder said, look, what I'll do, I can build houses for thousands. So I will build your houses for you if you will give me some of your surplus of your food. So they now lived in superb houses. There was jacuzzis out the back and all that sort of stuff. And they ate like kings, but their clothes are pretty shabby. And also ill health continued to visit them. And the next settler had worked with Ralph Lauren for a few years. So when he came along, he said, look, what I'll do is I can make clothes for thousands of people. So I will clothe everybody in the settlement if you will build me the house and you will supply me with the food. So now everybody dressed magnificently. They lived in great houses and they ate like kings. And then a doctor came along and he said, I can cure or I can maintain health in thousands. So now they were healthy, dressed very well, lived in magnificent houses and ate very well. And each person gave of their surplus. And this is the natural way of life, that you simply give your surplus for the benefit of others. So you have to make that decision. Am I going to share my surplus with others, 
or am I going to just simply take for myself? The eighth decision is, wherein lies my happiness? Is my happiness within, or is it without? If I believe it is without, then I will seek to change the world so that it will make me happy. I will want the weather to be good. I will want the room to be warm, and these sort of things. But if I realize that my happiness is internal, then I know it is independent of all circumstances, and that I always have it. I just have to connect with it. And the ninth decision is, will I marry? And whom will I marry? And on what basis will I marry? Now, there are two bases on which to marry, fundamentally. One goes out looking for someone who can make me happy. Or you can go out looking for someone that you can make happy. Most of us have sought somebody that could make me happy. And this is an act of selfishness. And to find someone that you can make happy is an act of love. Some of you are looking guiltily at the floor at this point in time. And the tenth and final decision is, what work will I do and how will I choose it? And Khalil Gibran, in his book, The Prophet, said that work is love made visible. So one could decide one's work on the basis of the contents of one's heart, i.e. a desire to express the love in my heart. Or else one could decide to do particular work on the basis of money or prestige or power or simply qualifications. Every one of us makes those ten decisions and how we make them completely shape our lives. If we make them wisely, then life unfolds beautifully. And if we make them badly, then life is full of suffering. In fact, if the decisions are made badly, we face many, many crises in our lives. And I'm going to just take the, the so-called midlife crises. And I'm going to exaggerate what happens. Or maybe, well, hopefully it's an exaggeration. So we'll assume a man is 25 and he decides to marry. And his image is that the marriage will be a perfect marriage, that he has found his soul in. And the children that he has, or will have, they will fulfill his dreams. They'll actually be an improvement on himself. And he decides on his career. And in this career, he will make his mark. He will make a difference. And there will be money and prestige and power to go with it. And he will also decide on his lifestyle. The level of wealth he wishes to enjoy how he will spend his leisure time and what he will spend his money on and the goods he will accumulate. So we now roll on the clock 20 years, he's now 45 and the marriage is good but it's not exactly made in heaven. The word soulmate doesn't spring to mind when he looks across the breakfast table. In fact, other words spring to mind. <laughs> And they're friends, but the lives, there's much privacy in their lives. So they don't communicate fully anymore. 
and they live parallel lives, but not one life together. And the children that were meant to be an improvement of themselves, one of them now turns out to want to be a ballet dancer, which he finds horrific. And they've got their own lives, and they play their own sports, and they have their own values, and they go their own way. And this career that was so promising at the start has now become repetitive. There are no more promotions in sight. The young are beginning to compete with them. They're willing to stay longer in the office. They've got much more energy than he has. And he realizes that he's not indispensable anymore. In fact, he's easily replaceable. And the lifestyle that he's grown accustomed to, the money is not yielding the satisfaction that he had hoped for. The interests, the real interests in his life have been neglected. And so he comes to a decision, a very simple but stupid decision, that he married the wrong woman, that he went on the wrong career, and it's the wrong lifestyle. So he finds the new woman, he changes his career, you know, something like growing organic carrots in the West, something like that. And he goes for the simple lifestyle. He wears big woolly pullovers and things like that, you know. Instead, puts away all his suits. And for five years, he thinks, now I've made the right decision. And then the same patterns emerge, and now it's too late. So then he resigns himself to his fate and fundamentally awaits death. If he has some positive outlook in his life, he begins to enjoy his grandchildren, and he warns them not to make the same mistakes as he did. Now, what are the bases for decision-making? The fruits of our decisions will be determined by the actual basis of the decision. If they are truly based, they will bear good fruit. And if they are falsely based, they will bear bad fruit. And about four or five years back, a very good friend of mine was deciding to leave his wife because he'd found another woman. And I wrote him a letter outlining the basis for decision-making. And so I thought I would read it to you. So, dear so-and-so, forgive me for writing, but I find it impossible not to lay down some thoughts for you to consider, as I firmly believe that you are making a disastrous mistake, one that is in nobody's best interests, including your own. There is always a basis to every decision. The quality of the decision, and therefore its fruit or effects, is totally determined by the basis. In this particular situation, the possible bases to consider are. So the first one, it could be reason, i.e., is the decision reasonable or unreasonable? And a reasonable decision is always a good decision, i.e., its effect is goodness. The more people that benefit from the decision, the greater its goodness. On this basis, you are the only potential beneficiary. And even that is questionable. And your wife, children, parents, and mother-in-law 
are definite sufferers from this decision. The decision is therefore unreasonable. The next basis could be love, i.e. is the decision motivated by love or by selfishness? And a decision is motivated by love when it is in the best interest of others and it is selfish if it is in one's own best interest and also at the expense of others' best interests. None of the parties concerned, i.e. wife and children, etc., will agree that their interests are being catered for. The decision is therefore selfish. The third basis for a decision could be virtue, i.e. is the decision just or not. The only justifiable basis for causing suffering to another is that they have committed some wrongdoing and one is simply redressing the balance or teaching them a valid lesson. In this case, while there may be some argument in relation to parents, mother-in-law and wife, there is absolutely no argument when it comes to the children. They are simply innocent and to consciously, willingly and deliberately hurt the innocent is without virtue, i.e. vicious and unjust. The fourth possible basis is duty, i.e. is one fulfilling one's duty or is one abdicating one's responsibility. It is the basis of all civilized society that duty be fulfilled by the individual before he claims his rights. Of course you have the right to be happy, but that right can only be claimed after you have fulfilled your duty. And in this case, what is your duty? These children have been brought into this world and they need a full-time father. A promise has been made to a wife to share all the days of your life with her. A contract can only truly be dissolved where all parties, husband, wife, children, etc., agree to it. Otherwise, it behoves a man to fulfill his duty. This decision is claiming the right to abdicate responsibility, which one freely took on, without reference to the duty one owes to the other parties. And the final basis for a decision is fear, i.e. the fear of loss of good name and or the fear of causing pain and suffering to others. And this is perhaps a surprising basis for a decision, but it has led many a man to make the right decision. In this case, ordinary decent people will undoubtedly hold you in lesser regard for making this decision. As stated previously, the decision will cause considerable pain and suffering. I am informed that a parent walking out of the family home is more traumatic for the children than the death of the same parent. The reason for this is that the children realize that in the case of death, there was no choice, whereas in the case of abandonment, it was a conscious, deliberate and willing choice of the parent. The essential basis of marriage is not happiness, but the resolution to face all situations in unison, come what may. True partners, 
face all difficulties together and never think of leaving the other to suffer alone. True partners are partners in all circumstances. They are not fair-weather partners. Now, there are undoubtedly difficulties in the marriage that need to be faced. But to walk out of the family home, to abandon one's wife and children, and in effect tell them that they must now care for themselves without full-time help or participation from you, is an act that is unreasonable, selfish, unjust, and an abdication of duty. And such an act cannot be productive of happiness for anyone. Now this decision can either be the product of selfishness or confusion. I do not believe that you are a selfish man, but I do think that you are unhappy. And this unhappiness has led to a total lack of clarity in your decision-making. It is my belief that you have taken stock of your life, as many people do, and that there is a dissatisfaction with your wealth, your career, and your family. This dissatisfaction has caused you to become unhappy with everything and has formed the belief that a change would lead to greater happiness. First of all, many will be delighted with your level of wealth, how your career has advanced, and the quality of wife and children that you have. And even if it could be argued that these three facets of your life were not truly satisfactory, the solution is not to run away from them, but to face them, work on them, and bring them to a satisfactory state. This is not an impossible task for a man of your ability. Finally, there is a principle in philosophy with regard to decision-making, which is that when in doubt, seek the advice of those who entertain no such doubt. I do not believe that this is clear-cut for you, I, I feel that there is a doubt. I also do not believe that you could get three people from amongst those who love you most to agree with your decision. If those who love you most, which includes me, and who would have your genuine happiness and best interest at heart, advise you not to carry out this decision, does it not strongly point out to you that perhaps your thinking and the basis for this decision is fundamentally flawed. Rarely in life does a man have to take a stand. This is one such situation, and the stand he takes reveals the quality of the man. Your friend, Shane Mulhall. And the letter basically, as you've heard, sets out all the bases for valid decision-making. Now, we need to look at the functioning of the mind. And it's absolutely obvious that the body has different organs and they have different purposes. So you don't pick up a knife with your tongue, you use your hands. And you use your tongue to taste things. But the mind also has organs. We tend to think of it as a single entity, but in fact it has many organs. And they all have different purposes. All organs have different functions, 
and one needs to use the right tool for the particular job. Now the body, via the senses, feeds in information to what is called the discursive mind. The discursive mind takes this information and it formulates it and presents it to the intellect. The intellect on receiving this information reasons, discriminates and decides how it would best use the information. Having decided, the discursive mind resolves what is to be done and then the body enacts the decision. And this is the process. So in summary, the body enacts using the senses, the intellect reasons and discriminates and decides. So it will decide that something is big or small or true or not true or good or bad. And the discursive mind will formulate, but it only formulates. It offers possibilities or thoughts or opinions, but it cannot determine the truth of anything. So one never uses the discursive mind to decide. The intellect is the only instrument in the mind for making decisions. And to give you a sense of how the discursive mind works in a totally exaggerated situation, if you can imagine that I have a daughter and she's age 16 or so, and she's going out on our first date. At 8 o'clock or something like that, I hear the sound of a Harley Davidson 1200cc coming up the driveway at at least 90 miles an hour. And there's a bang at the door and this long, hairy, ape-like creature asks, can he take my daughter, or tells me, in fact, that he's taking my daughter out. And he reminds me of a Hell's Angel film that I saw once in the 60s. But I say yes. And as they go out, my daughter says to me that they'll be back at 11. So I sit down and try and watch the telly. And the discursive mind begins to spin. All the possibilities. Sold into white slavery beheaded, all sorts of things. And as the time goes on, the mind speculates more and more and more. In fact, I cannot believe how revolting the thoughts of my own mind are. Anyway, it gets to 11 o'clock, and the mind is in a complete spin. Then it gets to 5 past 11, and 10 past 11. And I'm beginning to, at this stage to think I shall call in the British Army and all their helicopter fleet, and we shall search the land for her. And the mind would say, perhaps... They had a puncture. That was a sweet little thought of mine. Perhaps they're having a cup of tea. Perhaps his watch stopped. Perhaps he invited the rest of the gang around and she's dead now. And the point about it is I can't work out which one is true. It could be anything from uh, a puncture to sold into white slavery. And this is the discursive mind. All it does is offer possibilities but it can't tell you which one is true or which one is even more likely to be true. Only the intellect can make the decisions. Quite often we use this part of the mind for making our decisions, all the pros and cons. Now, for the mind to work properly, the state of the mind is the most important factor. 
And there are three fundamental states of mind. The first state of the mind and the best state of mind is for the mind to be still. If you wish to use your mind in its most intelligent way, you let it be still. When the mind is still, it is bright, it clearly sees the truth from the untruth, it looks inward and refers to principle. It is unconcerned by personal consequences and it decides on the basis of what is true, not on what I like or dislike. In this state, it is easy to decide. Decisions are made speedily and one enjoys certainty and truthfulness. Doubts are not entertained and decisions are not reversed. Once made, they remain. And all decisions that you make leave you light, happy in yourself, and free. And in this state, the senses feed to the discursive mind the relevant information. The discursive mind formulates for the intellect to decide. The intellect decides on the basis of truth. The discursive mind formulates the decision, and the body simply enacts it. The decisions one makes are never the same decisions, day in, day out. They are always related to time and circumstance. They are always true. They are always for the benefit of everybody. And in this state, the intellect is master of the mind, and the discursive mind is its faithful servant. The second possible state for the mind is the active state. And here the mind is a mixture of truth and untruth, a mixture of reason and opinion, a mixture of love and desire. And here the discursive mind dominates the mind. And so one tries to make decisions by weighing up pros and cons. So you make lists why we should buy the house, why we should not buy the house. And if you go to bed that night and the pros slightly exceed the cons, when you wake up next morning, you'll think up a few more cons. And now you say, no, we won't buy the house. But if you think about it long enough again, you'll think up a few more pros, and then we will buy the house. When trying to make this decision in this active state, we consider what will the effects on me be? What will the effects on others be? What will I gain from making this decision? What will I lose from it? <laughs> We do not look back to principles, but look forward to imagined consequences. What will happen if, and what will happen then? And the fact of the matter is that anything could happen. In this state, decision-making is exhausting. We find it difficult to make decisions. I don't know whether you've had the situation, but sometimes I say, I want to buy a suit. And it's a clear-cut decision, I need one suit. So I go into the shop, and lo and behold, there is a beautiful grey suit, but there's also a beautiful blue suit. Now, before I went into the shop, I only wanted one suit. In fact, I only need one suit. But now I'm faced with two beautiful suits. And so I tried them on normally two or three times. And when I try on the grey one, I think, that really suits me. But then when I put on the blue one, I think, gosh, gosh I think that one really suits me as well. And I want both. 
Now, if I decide very abruptly, I'm only buying one, that's it. And I go out with the grey suit. For the next three months, I see blue suits everywhere. <laughs> and they all look magnificent on people. And in fact, the grey suit doesn't look so good on me. That's the way it is. You are plagued afterwards. Our decisions are troubled. We overanalyze. We go over it again and again and again. We pick it up, put it down, pick it up and put it down. And even when we decide, then we easily reverse the decision. We find it hard to complete our actions because the decisions were not made when the mind was still. And if I can tell you an absolutely pathetic story from my life to illustrate this, about the difficulty of completing actions when the mind doesn't decide correctly. We lived in this house and it had neo-Georgian windows. For those of you who have never lived in such a house, never do. Because there are millions of tiny little windows. They are impossible to clean and painting them is a nightmare. Anyway, we had this little house with these neo-Georgian windows and the windows had not been painted for seven years. So with the paint falling off, I was suddenly sort of motivated into action. I wasn't going to paint one window, I was going to paint all windows. Not only was I going to paint all windows, I was going to paint them on the inside and the outside. I was going to finish this job off once and for all. So when you take on a big job like that, you need a plan. So the first thing I did was I got a piece of paper and a pencil and a cup of tea and I sat down. Where will I start and where will I finish? And when will I have the kitchen done? And what week will it take before I get to the sitting room? And will I start upstairs or downstairs? So I made out this master plan. It was nearly lunch at this, this is a Saturday morning, nearly lunch at this stage. Then I needed equipment. And this is good fun. You go to the DIY place, you buy half-inch brushes, one-inch, two-inch, three-inch, ones that can go around corners, that, you know, all sorts of things, all sorts of paints and paint removers and various cloths. I now had enough equipment to paint Buckingham Palace effectively, and I brought it all back and I put it into the garage. But I was exhausted at this stage. And I said, right, but I'm not going to give up now. But I didn't trust myself, because I've often started jobs before and not finished them. I said, how can I make sure that I really do finish this job once I start it? So one thing is, I'm going to put up the plan on one of the kitchen units facing me, so that every time I come up to the, into the kitchen, I see my own plan, and even worse, my wife sees it as well. And this will motivate me to maintain the plan. Anyway, I still didn't trust myself. I said, well, one further thing I can do, what I can do is I can, uh, I'll, in order to speed up the job a little bit, I'll, uh, I put masking tape on all the windows, both inside and outside. And I'll do that first before I paint any window. And then I can really go at it very fast. So I started off with a scissors and this ginormous roll of masking tape. And about an hour later, I'm biting the, uh, the measurements off in rage, right? As I try and stick them on the window just the right length. Anyway, that weekend I got the entire house masked, inside and outside. And I said to myself, it looks so appalling now. 
there is no way that I will not finish this job. Because <laughs> right? the world and its mother knows that I'm about to paint the windows. They can see it from the masking tape. Two years later, <laughs> okay, I, I, I hired in this painter to paint the windows. And the first thing that he charged me for was the removal of the masking tape. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, this is before I took up philosophy. Now, in this very active state, there's often a sense I have just too much to do. And I can't decide what to do and which to do first. So I normally don't start anything. My decisions in this state will be reactionary. They are tit-for-tat decisions. You did this to me, so therefore I'm going to do that to you. And then, if it's a very, very active state, we are riddled with doubt. And this is like going to bed at night, and just as you're about to go to sleep, the mind says, did you lock the back door? And you said, yes, I did. Did you hear the click? And you can't be sure you heard the click. So you have to get back out. Sometimes you get back out more than once. There are some people who have to nail the door shut as the only means of getting asleep. These are the ever-doubtfuls. In this active state, the decisions can be good, but only by coincidence. And they can be selfish also. The third possible state of the mind is that the mind is fixed. Here the mind is rigid. There's no change. It's the same reaction to the same situation. You become a sort of a fundamentalist. Your decisions are not related to time and circumstance, but come from an excessive attachment to a particular idea or feeling. This is how you get the bigot or the Puritan or something like that. In this state, you're absolutely certain about your decisions, but you're completely wrong. Sometimes you enjoy great, great conviction. And even when you know the decision is untrue, you still don't care. You go ahead with it. So you may actually go to somebody for advice. They give you perfect advice. And you say to them, I know you're right, but... And you do the complete opposite. These decisions are related to me alone. So, when the mind is still, the decisions are for the benefit of all. When the mind is active, the consideration is me and others. And when the mind is fixed, the consideration is only me. Now, what are the impediments to decision-making? And the first impediment to true decision-making is desire. And again, to read from an answer from the Shankaracharya, he says, when the propelling force of action is the desire of the individual, then he is working with a claim for a result. Everyone knows within himself the right and wrong of any action, but being propelled by desire, people ignore the law and want to get a pleasant result. They may well do so and enjoy the result, 
but nature moves only according to law and a misused law will produce a wrong result somewhere else. The wise man is helped by discrimination and does all without being involved by obeying the laws in proper time and proper place. And this does not produce any bad results from nature later on. This is the difference between the activity done under discrimination and activity for results. So desire distorts our true decision-making. The second impediment to true decision-making is excessive thinking. We are thinking addicts. We can't stop thinking. And there's a famous quote from Hamlet, and he says, And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And you may recognize this, that if you think long enough about anything, you won't do it. So if you think long enough about buying a house, you will be filled with doubt. If you think long enough about whether you should marry this man or woman, you will be filled with doubt. And thoughts arise telling you that you can't do this, or you won't be able to do that. And I asked Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the school, about this, and how do you get over that? And he gave me a very interesting line. He said, always do the impossible, but within your resources. You see, what is normally taken to be impossible is what the mind tells you is impossible. So always do the impossible, but within your resources. The third great impediment to true decision-making is postponement or procrastination. And there is the statement from the Bible that to everything there is a season. And this is so true. There is a right moment for everything. And in that moment, there is sufficient energy for the task. There is absolute clarity as to what needs to be done. And the task flows easily. You know, when you want to get on a bus, there's just a right time to get on the bus. When the bus pulls up and the door is directly opposite you, you simply step on the bus. If you try to get on the bus before it arrives at the bus stop, there's the danger it's going to run you down. If you wait until it's taken off from the bus stop, well, then you have to run after it. If you postpone actions, you will find that they take an awful lot more out of you than the right time to do them. So there's always a right moment, and the postponement of that impedes our decision-making. The fourth impediment to true decision-making is sentimentality. This is when we're afraid to say no. This is like when somebody comes up to you and says, do you know where South William Street is? And the truth of the matter is you don't know. But you don't say no. You say, actually, I think if you just go down there and if you turn to the right, I think that would uh, get you there. 
Whereas the right thing to do is to say to the person, I don't know. Then they can go and ask somebody who does know. Or somebody invites you to a party and you say, I might come. You won't just say to them, no, I can't come, or no, I won't come. Or in the banking world or the venture capital world, it's known as the slow no. So you ask them, would you be interested in supporting me in this business venture? And so the bank manager says, yes, we would be very interested. That is the slow no. Because three meetings later, they say no. It's outside our guidelines or something like that. We often, due to this sentimentality, pull our punch. We soften what needs to be said, and we won't face the facts. One should look and believe what one sees. The fifth impediment to true decision-making are four factors. Fear, doubt, greed, or excitement. They all distort the decision-making. Often a child is not chastised because there is a fear of the loss of love of the child. We won't correct them because we're afraid to lose their love. And the sixth and final impediment to true decision-making is this ridiculous effort on our part to try to foretell the future or to try to foretell the consequences. We don't have the gift of prophecy, so there's no point in trying to imagine the future and decide on that basis. There's a famous sage from India called Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he said, the outcome of any event is the result of innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. You're not in control of the outcome of anything. So when does true decision-making arise? It arises when the mind is still. That's all that is required. There's this famous statement from the Bible, be still and know that I am God. So with stillness of mind, one can come to the completeness of knowledge. When the mind is still, the intellect dominates, and therefore reason dominates, and discursive mind serves. The two greatest aids to stillness of mind are meditation and good company. But there are some other factors which are helpful, some other aids to decision-making. And in order to make this talk practical, I'd just like to relate these to you. The first thing to practice is detachment. So let the desire for a particular result go. One thing you'll notice is that you are superb at giving advice to others. Sometimes you're astounded by how wise you are when you're advising others. And the reason why wisdom flows when you are advising others is because you are detached from the outcome. So wisdom flows. But often you can't even take your own advice because you're so attached to the outcome. So the first thing is to practice detachment. The second thing is to be your own best friend. 
what would you advise your best friend to do in the same circumstances as you find yourself in? And whatever you would advise them to do, you take that advice yourself. It's very easy to be your own best friend, and you will find that you are a wise best friend. A third thing, which is very useful, it facilitates you being able to determine whether an action is good or not. If you want to know whether an action is good for you or not, you ask whether it is good for the family. If it is good for the family, it is good for you. If you want to know whether an action is good for the family or not, you ask, is it good for the community? If it is good for the community, it will be good for the family, and it will be good for you. If you want to know whether an action is good for the community, you ask whether it's good for the nation. And if it's good for the nation, it will be good for the community, the family, and you. You always look to the next level. And if it's good for the next level, then it will be good for the levels below. So if something is good for the body, it will be good for the hands and the feet and the head and the torso. So you always look, not what is good for my right arm, but what is good for the body. You go to the next level. The fourth factor, which is helpful to bring about true decision-making, is to find the unity in every situation so that reason can operate. So what is it that unifies wife and husband but marriage? So don't serve wife or don't serve husband, but serve the marriage, and then both wife and husband benefit. What joins employee and employer but the firm or organization they both work for? So all decision-making should be for the benefit of the firm. Because if it is up for benefit of the firm, it will benefit the employee and the employer. The fifth factor which can help decision-making is that when in doubt, take guidance from those who entertain no such doubt. The sixth aid to decision-making is to always give your word. You know when you ask children to do something and they grunt back at you? And you say, just say yes. Because when you are obliged to say yes, you give your word. Now when you give your word, you bind your being. And this gives strength to the decision. The seventh factor is to always act under authority. So that the decisions have authority. So act under true principle or scripture or the words of the wise. The eighth factor is carpe diem, to seize the day. So decide in the moment and act in the moment. Then nature or creation supports the action. It's like planting seeds at the right moment then you will have a harvest. But if you plant out of season, you get no reward. Now it's time for me to stop, and it's time for you to decide. You should inquire into and decide who am or what am I.
you should inquire into and decide what is the ultimate aim of my life. And you should inquire into and decide to who or what will I refer my thoughts, words and deeds. You should make these decisions and then live out these decisions. And this will give your life meaning, it will give it direction, it will give it stability, and it will give it fulfillment. And that's it. So, thank you very much. Now, the first big decision that awaits you is whether you're going to have tea or coffee. <laughs> so you can make that wisely. And then, we're, if you could be back at five past, and then you can put your decisions, not your decisions, your, um, your questions, and we'll see what answers arise. Thank you. Are we ready? Now, just to let you know, the evening is being recorded. If you wish to ask a question, then you need to put up your hand, and a microphone will be handed to you. I'll jump in as the first person. Very good. Very brave of you. Okay. Would, would you accept that the validation of a decision as to whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, or perhaps a right or a wrong decision, maybe that's a different mm -hmm. area, can best be arrived at when the eventual outcome or set of outcomes begin to fall into place? You don't actually have to wait. It is a validation, but there is another validation which is far more certain. But you have to come to this decision. You have to decide whether this is a lawful universe or not a lawful universe. If you decide that it is a lawful or a just universe, then there is a law, as you sow, so shall you reap. And so that a good action bears good fruits and a bad action bears bad fruits. So to know whether a decision is good or not, whether it will bear good fruits or not, you only look to the goodness of the decision itself. The law ensures the result. This is why you don't need prophecy. You don't need to imagine consequences. You need to just look to the action. And to judge whether an action is good or not, you look to its motivation. And if the motivation is pure and for the benefit of all, then it is a good action and it will bear good results. You may not be able to judge that immediately because it may take a long time. It may appear the opposite initially. But in the fullness of time, yes, the results will match the quality of the action. Yeah, and I have some difficulty with that because it, it's somewhat absolute. But I suppose the, the reason I asked the question was, and perhaps some other people have questions on this as well, applying it to the example you gave, the letter to your friend, there are several possible outcomes to his decision. And you can't predict, perhaps, we, we probably can quote cases where what might have been or what might have appear, appeared in the general perception to be a wrong decision ultimately turned out to be one where harmony, good sense, wisdom prevailed, <coughs> went against the conventional expectation, and the decision, in the end, was proved right by its outcome. Yes, but do not make decisions based on conventional expectations. 
That's my make, point. Yes, well, never make a decision on that basis. Yeah. The, the basis are reason or love. These are the two highest bases. And if you can't rise to reason or love, then you use virtue. If you can't rise to that, well, then use duty. If you can't rise to that, well, then fear. And if you can't do that, well, then ask somebody. <laughs> There's nothing conventional about wisdom. Spontaneous, complete and true, never lets you down. If you could come to this decision that as you sow, so shall you reap, it will make life so easy for you. You need never worry about consequences. All you need to do is to look into your heart as you make the decision. And if I can just tell a story, now it's not proof, but it does have an ending which suits the point I'm going to make. The School of Philosophy in Dublin has a children's school called John Scotus associated with it. And there is an ancient principle with regard to knowledge that one may not charge for knowledge. And in days of old, there was no such thing as fees for education. Education was free. And this is a true principle, that you cannot charge for knowledge and you cannot charge for love. Anyway, in John Scotus School, we do have fees. So we have failed in that principle. And one year, the governors, when looking at next year's budget, decided that it was necessary to put up the fees because the way the accountant had produced the figures, it was going to show a loss. And so they asked me about putting up the fees, and I said, no, we're not putting up the fees, because the true principle is that all education is free, and we're not going to move further away from that truth. And there was a big and somewhat heated discussion about this. At the end of the meeting, I said, look, we'll meet again, so I suggested we meet at 6.30 the next morning. If you want a quick decision from people, meet them at 6.30 in the morning. So we met at 6.30 the next morning, and there was all sorts of, well, look, if we don't put up the fees, these will be the consequences, and we will go bust, and then there'll be no education for the children, and all these sorts of things. And I said, no, we're not putting up the fees. The fees will not go up because it is not true in principle. And we can only act according to principle. So it got to about 8 o'clock and everybody had to go off to work, so I said, we'll meet at 6.30 tomorrow morning. It brings a certain focusing of the mind. And so we met the next morning. I said to people, I said, look, do you believe in this principle? So I asked each governor, do you believe in this principle that there should be no charge for education? or for knowledge. And they said, yes. I said, on that basis, we can't increase the fees. Because a good action bears good results, and a bad action bears bad results. The accountant had produced a three-year projection showing disaster. And I happen to have trained as an accountant, so I, I do know the weaknesses of projections. So I said to him, can you tell me, with any degree of certainty, what number of children will enroll in this school next September if we don't increase the fees? Can you tell me it will be 10 or 40 or 4,000? And he says, I can't. And I said, your projections have no knowledge in them at all. They are mere extrapolations of the past. 
They have no power of prediction in them at all. We should not be looking at these projections when making our decision. Anyway, they eventually decided, right, we will not put up the fees. And maybe we should reduce them so that we can move closer towards the truth of the situation. So we did reduce the fees by some percentage. And the net effect of this was £10,000. That's all it was, but it was a significant sum of money in those days. £10,000. And so the budget was passed with the reduction of the fees. To give a happy little ending to this story, I have to divert for a second. Three months previously, we had written to a Dutch charity saying that our school was founded on good principles and that they had supported education establishments and would they support our endeavours by making a contribution to our school. And we'd heard nothing back from them. I went down to the front of the house and there was a letter stuck in the letterbox which had been delivered the previous day, but it was stuck in the letterbox. And I took it out and it was from the charity. And they said, Dear Sirs, we have considered your request. We wish to donate £10,000 to your charity and please forward the name and bank account number. That's the way it works. And it always works. You need never, ever, ever fear cutting truth first. It is your guarantee to a good outcome. We're not good at evaluating events. We judge them in sort of small snapshots. Now, this is an hysterical story. But I'm going to make it up and give it to you. All right. So, take a situation where I'm preparing a report for a board of directors, and it's a very important report, and the possibility is that I will get promotion if this report is well received. So I work all weekend, I dress very, very smartly on the Monday morning, I'm wearing a new white silk shirt, my suit is pressed, and I set off for work in very, very good time. During the weekend, I've bought four brand or five brand new tires for the car, and they're all on the, on the car. Anyway, in the outside lane, I get a puncture. All right. So eventually, after about a thousand cars pass me by and will not let me into the inside lane, I eventually get the car into the inside lane. And I start to change the tire. And as is always, I can never find the uh, tools to change the tire with. But I eventually get it done. And now my shirt is black, the sweat pouring down my brow. An hour and a half has passed, and the traffic is backed all the way from the city centre. So I curse everything. I can't believe every car that has gone by has gone by with bald tires and not a puncture amongst them. With me with my brand new tires, I get the puncture. My wife rings me at that moment and she says, don't forget to bring home a pound of butter this evening. <laughs> I say, this is not a good time, Anne. Do not ask me to do this. Anyway, and it's a lousy day. It's just life is so unfair. And to think that I did all the right things and look at the way life's unfolding. Anyway, I eventually get to the office, and as I pull up towards the office, I notice the whole place is engulfed in flames. Everybody who arrived that morning on time burnt to a cinder. <laughs> so I leap out of the car, open the boot of the car, kiss the tire, say, God, isn't life good? I decide I'm going to frame this tire, put it over the mantelpiece, and hug it periodically for good luck. Anyway, the uh, board of directors are brought down 
these little charcoal entities are all brought down uh, out on stretchers and are laid out on the ground. And suddenly, from the center of the chest of each one of these directors, a white, sort of shimmery type thing emerges and moves up. And as it hits the clouds, the clouds part and it goes through it. And I say, good God almighty, what's going on here? And God misinterprets. He thinks it's a sincere prayer of mine. So he answers me. He says, well, I'm taking this board of directors up to eternal bliss as of now. And I say, but what about me? He says, well, you need to look for a new job. <laughs> and at that moment, my wife rings me again. <laughs> you see, when is it good or when is it bad? How do you know? How do you know that an outcome is bad? We're always judging at a particular point in time. I thought it was bad when I hesitated and this girl was asked up by another man. Now I thank the good Lord. And she does as well, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's a very big step now, a really, really big step. But if you want to come to ultimate certainty with regard to decisions, you have to come to a decision about this. Is there such a law as, as you sow, so shall you reap? If you can come to that, life just falls into place. Because you never have to imagine the future. You just deal with the present moment. You look into your heart now and say, is the motivation here pure? If it is, off you go. Final question. Yeah. How effective were you in persuading your friend to, to yeah. his decision? It didn't influence him at all. Yeah. He went yeah. ahead. He went ahead and within six months... He was in abject misery, and he has been in abject misery every day since then. And what, what's, what's your attitude? Is it such a schadenfreude? Or? Sorry? How did you view that then afterwards? Well, it, I thought that he had made the wrong decision, and he had to suffer the consequences, and uh, one day I hope the misery will be so great that he'll come and talk to me again. First of all, thanks very much for an absolutely excellent lecture. What I wanted to ask, you semi-answered in one of your last statements there, and it relates to, I think you call it a basis for decision-making, i.e., to everything there is a season. How do you know when it is a season? It's very intuitive. You naturally know when you're not moved by desire or fear, or greed, or excitement. For example, say my children. When they're not being honest with me, they wait until I'm just about going out the door before they ask me a question. Or they say, Dad, I'm, I'm going to bed now, and oh, by the way, I just wanted to ask you something. You know, they're just halfway out the door, and they're trying to force the situation. Do you recognize that? I do. Do you have a teenage daughter? No. A wife? Yes. Well, they do it as well. <laughs> except, except teenage daughters have not mastered it to the same degree as one's wife has. Right? Now, actually, if you ask your wife, she will tell you she knows when she shouldn't ask you a particular question. And you'll also know there's a time to ask somebody something. There's a time to tell them.
And if the mind is still and it's free, as I said, from desire or fear, you just know it's just perfect. Quite often we plan to say things. And it's inappropriate. You just wait. You wait and you wait and you wait. And then it just becomes absolutely obvious, now is the time to act. It'll just be a, an intuitive form of knowledge. But it comes when the mind is absolutely still. So there are no laws. You can't say six o'clock is the right time to ask or etc., etc. But I think you'll recognize, have you ever asked something at the wrong time or in the wrong circumstances? Yeah, yeah. Right. And you know you, well, you know it. You know it when the first word comes out of your mouth, this is not going to, you know, this is just awful. I shouldn't be really saying this right now. But then there are other times, and what you find, when the time is right, you can say anything to the person. Absolutely anything. If, however, it's a decision, say, that, I'll give you a real-life example. Yes. Uh, somebody decides to uh, set up their own business. Yes. They're going to leave the security of what they currently have, and it could be the right or the wrong move to make, but it's a move which, uh, a little bit like planting the seeds at the wrong time of the year, uh, or the right time of the year will either determine success or not. There are a couple of errors just in what you said. First of all, you're not leaving any security at all. There is no security where you are. That's all imagined. The office block could be burnt down the next day. Whatever, the company could fold. A million things. It's an imagined security. We all the time go to sleep at night expecting to wake up the next morning. We don't expect our partner to die during the night. It's all imagined as if things are going to go on, and they don't go on like that. So that's the first thing. Do not think that you are leaving security for insecurity. If the decision is right, you are secure. Now, if you want to set up a business, it doesn't have to be a risky thing at all. You ask yourself two questions. Is there a need? That's the first question. That's all you have to ask in business. Is there a need? If there's a need, the world will come to you to satisfy their need. And people often make things they want to make rather than look to do people need these things or want them. So that's the first thing. You always look to your customer. Is there a need for this? If there's a need, you are 95% there. And the second thing you ask yourself is, what is the motivation behind this task? And if you could make it that the motivation is to satisfy the need and to take your lawful profit, then you are absolutely assured. But if you decide, I'm going to go for glory and a million other things, well, you may get a bite in your bum. <laughs> All you have to do is act according to true principle. How does that relate to the season? Because the need, don't sell ice cream during the winter or you know, sand to the Arabs. When I say season, it's environment, circumstance, that sort of thing. It's like if you rear a child at various ages of its life, there are times to tell it things. 
it's absolutely obvious that there's certain knowledge which is very useful to at age 10, but is not useful to at age 4. So let's say you had a five-year-old and it's going off to school for the first day. And it says to you, Daddy, what's school like? You say, well, there's a lot of trigonometry. <laughs> and that is extremely difficult. Now, albeit it is true that there is, say, a lot of trigonometry and that it is complex, it is completely invalid to the time and circumstances. You meet the need that's there. And the real key is whether you're connected. And if you're connected, you will connect with the season. So, again, if I can just tell a story. My 16-year-old daughter once came up to me. that She attends the School of Philosophy and said she wanted to leave the School of Philosophy. Now, I happen to be the leader of the School of Philosophy, and at that point in time was absolutely identified with it. My family do not leave the School of Philosophy. People will wonder, what am I doing wrong? So anger arose when my daughter said this. And I said, don't talk to me now. Come back to me tomorrow, and we'll discuss it. Now, for the next 24 hours, I planned all the answers. I imagined all the, the reasons that she might leave, and I had superb answers. Crushingly superb answers. <laughs> so anyway, this little, well, she's a young lady, comes up to me and says, can we talk about it now? And I said, right, fire away. <laughs> and uh, she said, I want to leave. I said, why do you want to leave? So she said, A. And I said, that's ridiculous. And I proved it to be ridiculous, you see. And then she said, there's also this. And I blasted that one out of existence as well. And there was a, another reason I also destroyed that. I was superb. Superb at this. But then I woke up. And what I saw was a frightened little girl, terrified in front of her father. And this horrible creature beating up a little girl with his so-called prepared answers. And this was absolutely out of season. So I looked at my daughter and I said, you can make any decision you want to, but you should make it for good reasons, not for little reasons. This is a big decision and you should make it for big reasons and not little ones. And so I said, go away and reflect about it. And tomorrow when you fully reflect, you can come back and let me know your decision. And whatever decision it is, that is fine by me. And so she came back 24 hours later and said, I've decided to stay. And whether she had decided to go or decided to stay, that would have been equally valid. Now, the other, if you want to say, the other answers which had been given to her were all valid. They were all reasoned answers, but they were absolutely inappropriate to the moment. That was not how a father should have spoken to his daughter. Albeit the answers were all true in themselves. So when the mind is still, you will be in the present moment and you will connect with the needs of the moment. Thank you. All right. Yes, anybody else? How should an individual come to a decision about going to war? Well, the real question is, is it a just war? You have a responsibility to your neighbor. Man is not a, an island. He is a social creature. So he has responsibilities to those around him. And the real question 
you've got to ask, is justice on your side? And is this for love of my neighbor? And just to take the Second World War as an example, it was possible, if you were one of the Allies, to go to war with Germany out of love for Germany. if we just accept that Germany was in the wrong. So in order to prevent them from succeeding in a wrongdoing, which is an act of love, one goes to war with them and brings them to a point of surrender. But the self-same love should rebuild Germany when the war is over. So war should never be motivated by hatred. You don't hate your enemy. You can bring your enemy to a point of surrender out of love. Just as if you loved a son or a daughter and they were going to do something wrong, you would attempt to stop them out of love for them. So true war, or true participation in war, the only motivation is love. And the only thing that you need to make sure is that you have justice on your side. But war is always a last resort. Always. And it is only when the wrongdoer will not surrender to love or reason. But if the wrongdoer won't and wishes to inflict injustice on others, then you have a responsibility to protect the justice of others, just as you would protect your own child or your wife or whatever. Does that help our... <laughs> All right. There are not many just wars, but you have no right to let injustice triumph. So just as if you saw a fight and you saw somebody being beaten mercilessly, you have a duty to intervene, to stop wrongdoing. There is an intuitive knowledge where you just know that something is right, and it is right. And it is a knowledge that arises when the mind is absolutely still and the heart is absolutely open. And you just know what to do and what to say. You can't predict it. What should I do in the following circumstances? That's not the real question. The real question is, what state should I be in to know what to do in particular circumstances? The state is the all-important thing. For example, if I say that I have a, an educated, a somewhat educated mind, a reasonably intelligent mind, but when there is anger in this mind, I'm capable of the greatest stupidity. I lose all that I know. And all that I care for goes out the window, and I act in a stupid and selfish way. That doesn't mean that I am stupid and selfish. It means the state allows stupidity and selfishness to arise in this being. So the real key is for the state to be true. And that's why one of the points made in the talk was that the important thing is for the mind to be still. We weren't looking at love tonight, we were just looking at reason or decision making. So the important thing is for the mind to be still. And the best thing to bring about this stillness of mind is meditation and good company. And when you do that, the mind reveals true knowledge. The mind is said to be like water. So if you agitate water, it does two things. One is you disturb all the dirt in the water, so the water becomes cloudy. 
And the second thing is you can't see into the water. You can only see the waves on the top of the water. But when you allow the water to become still, all the dirt subsides and the water becomes clear and you see through the water. So when the mind becomes still, then you will have access to true knowledge. A knowledge that may even surprise you. You may be surprised by what you know when the mind is still. It may be fresh knowledge. And an example of this is, you're walking down the street, and suddenly you see a friend walking towards you. You've known them for 20 years, and you suddenly can't remember their name. And you start off with Anthony, and you go all the way to Xavier, and you still can't connect the body with a particular name. And the mind is really agitated, so you pass some sort of casual remark to them to get over the fact that you can't remember their name. And then 30 minutes later, or five minutes later, the mind is absolutely still, the name just pops up. And this shows that our knowledge and our feelings are not constant because of our state. And if the state could become still, let's say the mind could become still and the heart could become open, then true love and true knowledge would enact all our actions. And you wouldn't have to be prepared. You wouldn't have to know in advance. It would just arise in the moment to meet the need. So, with some... Shane, yes. we all have our own ideas of what good company is. Could you give us an, a description of what you mean by good company? Yes. Well, in very, very, very simple terms, it's that which brings out the best in you. So, if music, if particular music makes you depressed, or aggressive, or angry, or put you off into dreams, well, that's not you at your best. There is other music which will uplift you and inspire you and fill your heart full of love and still your mind. So you find that music um, that does that for you. That is good company for you in terms of music. Then there is literature which, you know, would make you want to slash your throat, and there's other literature which inspires you with the potentiality of the goodness of mankind. So that's good literature. Then there are people. You'll find there are some people that when you're with them, you always leave them depressed and sort of twitching. You're, sort of, you're, you're agitated within, you know, within a few minutes with them and you're sort of picking at things and fiddling. And there are other people, you're absolutely yourself, completely relaxed and open and honest. You know the way sometimes you meet somebody on a train for the first time and because you don't know them in any way, and because they are a particular type of person, you speak to them as you've never spoken to anybody ever before. You tell them your inner world, which you've never revealed to anybody. So there are people who bring out the best in you, because their natures are harmonious with you. And there are other people who bring out the worst in you. So there are people where you naturally are yourself, and there are people who bring out the worst in you. Rather than give you a list of do's and don'ts, that's far too rigid. In the same way, you cannot write out a diet for humanity. Everybody has a unique body. Everybody has a unique temperament and nature and emotional world and intellectual world or mental world. So there is that which suits you and brings out the best in you. And you should look to that. I mean, we do it with food. If you are allergic to strawberries, you stop eating them. If you find 
that are some people and when you're with them you're always gossiping in a very nasty or negative way about people. Well then that's not good company for you. If you can manage to be in their company and not be affected in that way, well then that's excellent. Now you're a good company for them. You will help them. But if they just bring you down to a lower level and you wish to operate out, then they're not good company for you. Does that help? Yes. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? This lady here. Um, do you have any ideas on how to deal with people who bring out the worst in you that you have got to either work with or live with? Yes. Or even worse, both. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The real key is not to avoid them. The pain is in trying to avoid them. Do you know when you try and cross the street so not to meet someone, or you try and not look at somebody in a restaurant you don't want to see? You spend the entire lunch hour staring at them from the side of your eye. You end up with a cast in your eye. What we do is we hold a set of ideas here, so when the person presents themselves to us, that meets our set of ideas, and we react to them. And we basically repel them or try and keep a distance between us and them. The real way is to absolutely engage with them. Behind that wall, you will find love. You always do. You go through the wall. The wall of resistance, the bit that you hate. So when that person is talking to you, you absolutely listen to them. So for example, let's say people say, I find sitting on a bus boring. In fact, I hate sitting on buses. So you ask them, what do you do? And they say, well, I dream of pleasant things. When I'm on the bus, I'm always thinking of nice things, like you know, holidays in Barbados or whatever. And then you ask them, well, does that mean you actually enjoy the bus journey? They say, no, I still hate them. And see, what it does do, when you try to deny what is actually there, it causes tremendous pain. And the real secret is to absolutely meet what is there to really engage. So take the boring person. What we do is, the so-called boring person, is we try not to listen to them because they're so boring. The real key is to absolutely listen to them. And then you find they're interesting. When you really, really, really engage with them. So don't step back, you step forward. It's very challenging, but when you taste, we call it the reward of it, that will encourage you. And just to take a different negative emotion. Take fear is a negative emotion. And if you step back from what you are afraid of, it grows. The fear grows. The way to make fear small is to step towards it, is to step through it or over it. Does that make sense? And it's the same with all the ones. So. If you find somebody boring, absolutely listen to them. The real secret of relationship is that you are to be the complement of the person in front of you. Now, just to take in terms of mathematics, if we take 10 as a perfect number and we have a number 7, then the complement is 3. It is that which you add to what is there to make it perfect or complete. So if it was 8, it would be 2, and if it was 4, it would be 6. 
They are the compliments. Now, if the person in front of you has anger, what they lack is peace. So when the person offers you anger, you offer peace. When they offer something else, you offer the compound. That's the way you do it. You always make good the deficiency. And then you keep on getting this perfection in front of you. So, for example, I have trained as an accountant. And if I was to describe my attributes as an accountant, I would call myself a creative, inventive accountant. If somebody said, are you a disciplined, ordered accountant? I'd say, not in a million years. So when I established a business for myself, I went looking for the most disciplined, ordered person in human existence and said, come and work for me. And this lady and myself, we worked together for something like maybe 14 years. And she was my compliment. Her talents and qualities and all like that complimented mine so that it was an excellent team. Now, whenever you're in, the, let's say, the company of people who are difficult working, there's something lacking in that moment. And your job is to fill the gap. You make good the deficiency. If you do it, it will bring you great satisfaction. It won't turn you into a martyr now or some sort of person who's slaving around trying to bring happiness to the world. It's not like that. But you will enjoy tremendous satisfaction because the satisfaction is in the number 10, let's say, in the fullness. And just to finish it, what we always do is we move away from it. And that's it's, it's the very wrong thing to do. If you don't want somebody to punch you, stand right up beside them. If you move back, you're giving them room to swing. <laughs> you, know, you often find this. When you want to have an argument with someone, you stand back a bit. If somebody wants to argue, you stand right up close to them. Back off now, and I want to say something to you. <laughs> don't you try that close thing with me. It's impossible to stand an inch apart and hate someone. It's just impossible. You know why? Because in their eyes you will see your own reflection. You will engage with their eyes. You can try it. Try absolutely looking at somebody in the eye and try to experience hatred at the same time. What you'll find is when you're angry with somebody, you never look them in the eye. You notice that you're looking all over the place. Somebody says, just here. You can try it if you have children. When they want to lie to you, they talk to you from behind. You say, no, 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 just come around to the front. Look me in the eye and then, now where are you going? What you'll find is this, this full engagement brings out the very best. Somebody was going to ask a question there. I just wanted to ask you, just on that last point, um, what if the person or the child or whatever hates themselves? Yes. Think it would still work? Like? Yes, it will work, but it may take the fullness of time. The one thing about love is that it is transformative. So one should never underestimate the power of love. Let's say a household is very poor, but the woman really loves the home. She will transform it. 
with love. That's what it does. So love always transforms. And what is important for the person who doesn't love themselves is to experience the love of another. That's one thing. The second thing you do do, in John's school to school, when the children come to school at the first, they're always told that they are pure, perfect, and complete. And that they're not allowed to deny that in themselves. So their behavior may be obnoxious, but they are pure, perfect, and complete. They're told that is your essential nature, and that is how the teacher tries to relate to them, as something pure, perfect, and complete, and at the same time deal with any behavior that's inappropriate. And the fact that they are met with that love, they learn to love themselves. So what you'll find is, if you do know somebody that does not have great self-love, is for you never to doubt their perfection. You hold them in love. And that will help them to love themselves. Would require to discipline them as well, obviously. Discipline from you or from them? Um, from both, really. But I mean, you know. Um, well, give me an example. Say, um, I'm a residential care worker. Yes. So, um, just with children, like sometimes people can just give them a lot, like too much, or maybe not too much, but a lot of love without discipline, and I don't know. If oh yes. That's actually not true love. Love is always in the best interest of the other. So it doesn't exclude discipline. If you want an analogy, which the Shankaracharya used, he used it in relation to parenting, but it applies to the care of any child. He said that parenting is like the potter making a pot, and he has two hands. And there's one hand, which is the inner hand, which is used to expand the clay. And then there's the outer hand, which is used to form the clay. The inner hand is the hand of love, and the outer hand is the hand of discipline. And if you use both hands and you use them appropriately, then you get this beautifully formed pot. If you only use love, then the clay expands and expands and expands, and the pot becomes brittle and can easily break. If you use too much discipline, you get no expansion and you get this tight little knot or a lump of clay. So in the caring for a child, it is a combination of love and discipline. Let's say you have a child who's considerably troubled and whose behavior is either antisocial or aggressive or whatever it is. One of the ways of dealing with that is not to work on the general statement that you are pure, perfect, and complete, because they may not hear that. But every human being has one attribute in which they excel. All right? Let's say there's a particular child that you're thinking of and they're particularly difficult. You discover what that attribute is and you praise that attribute and you put it to good use and you build the character on that one attribute. And there's always one attribute that the child has. It might be remarkable bravery or some other quality, but it will have some quality. And the idea is to say, you are a remarkably brave young child. And then you put it in positions where that bravery is called upon. And you praise it and praise it and praise it. And what happens, just like building a wall, suddenly 
this great character will begin to emerge. That's the key. Always find the one quality in which they naturally excel. And there is always one. One of the greatest men that I ever met, he was the most upright man that I actually have ever met. He had one quality par excellence. You only have to develop one quality and you are a remarkable human being. So the key is to find that one quality in everybody. And everybody does have it, by the way. A quality which makes them special. So if you are thinking about a particular person and you go to work tomorrow, well then look for that quality in them. And again, if I can just give it a, as an example, now this is more than one quality. One of my daughters was age 17 and she'd filled out her CAO form and effectively in total confusion because there was no clear idea in her mind as to what she should do career-wise. And the thing that I had noticed about her was that she had remarkable equanimity. She is the steadiest human being that I've ever met. Emotionally like a rock. Not in a cold way, but in an incredibly warm way. So in 19 years, I have never heard her lose her temper. I've never seen her lose her temper or raise her voice. And this is, it's an outstanding quality in her. But anyway, I found myself in South Africa. And I was talking to a man in South Africa. And he reminded me of my daughter. He had this remarkable equanimity. He was just so steady and so kind in his nature. And he also had a remarkable precision about him, the way he walked and sat and moved. And I discovered that he was a homeopath. So I asked him about homeopathy. And it was absolutely obvious that the two qualities really necessary to be a great homeopath is to have a tremendously kind and steady nature, because you are caring for the ill, and to have remarkable precision, because homeopathy is all to do with precision of measure. So I came back, and I took another look at my daughter, and I noticed that in all her actions, she was remarkably precise as well. So I said, oh, by the way, why don't you consider doing homeopathy? So she said, what's homeopathy? So I said, mm, well, um, you should go and buy a book. <laughs> so I said, go into Waterstones or one of these places and buy a couple of books on homeopathy and just read about them or try and find out who was a great homeopath who led a great life as a homeopath and read their life story and see does it mean anything to them. So she went in and she bought a few books and now she's studying to be a homeopath and she will be a great homeopath. She naturally excels in these qualities and they are naturally expressed in that particular career. So again, no matter how disturbed this young boy or young girl is, they will have some attribute in which they naturally excel, and they can build a glorious life around that attribute. And it's your job, if you care for them, to discover it, because they may not recognize it in themselves. But you'll see it if you watch them. There'll be one thing in which they have a natural advantage over other human beings. Sorry, Shane, you spoke of ten decisions. If I was to ask you, say, just like ten commandments, those one, if I was to say for one, that maybe above all the rest or yes. maybe encapsulates the rest, 
What would you say? Uh, yes, it's the first one. It's the, the question is, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? First of all, to just to point out why it is the important one. Unless you know what something is, you can't use it wisely. I'm going to make up a word. Let's say I say something is called a plodobolov. And I say, now, I want you to go downstairs. There's a plodobolov downstairs, and I want you to pick it up, and I want you to use it wisely. You can't do it. Because you don't know what it is, and you don't know what its function is. And it's like if you give a wood chisel to a child, and it doesn't know what it's for, it will use it for all sorts of wrong things. It will chisel mortar with it, and blunt it, and lessen its life. Now, unless you know what or who you are, you can't possibly use your life wisely. So it is the real question. We are a bit like children. You know when you buy a child a board game? Let's say it's Monopoly. This is my experience as a child. When my father used to buy us presents, and he'd say, now, hang on a second while I read the rules. we say, forget the rules. We just want to play. And we would attempt to play without the rules. And he would forbid us. And we'd be waiting and waiting as he tried to work out what the rules were. We're a bit like that. We're not truly educated, and we sort of feel obliged to live our lives without really questioning the essential rules or the purpose of the game. We just want to play. So we look around and we say, well, they got married, so well, lots of people seem to get married, so that seems to be the right thing to do, and people have children, that seems to be the right thing to do. People seem to be ambitious, that seems to be the right thing to do. People seem to be fundamentally selfish, that seems to be the right thing to do. They have mortgages and all these other things. Imagine you doing that to another creature. Imagine if you brought this dog home and you said, now look, be ambitious. Save up for a second kennel. <laughs> Rent it out. Retire early. It would destroy the dog's life. <laughs> but man is the only one who takes on these ideas thinking that this is the purpose of his existence well if you write on your gravestone I cleared the mortgage you will not die a happy man if that's your gravestone I got it to balance <laughs> this man works as an accountant you see I got it to balance every time that is not the fullness of human existence. And to take it in religious terms, but you can take it in any terms you want to, Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't say the fulfillment of human existence was a wife, a couple of children, a semi-detached house, and a cleared mortgage, and an inflation-proof pension. His instruction to mankind was perfection. And there's no possibility of this perfection unless you know who you are. So the real question is, who am I? What am I? Am I just a body? Is there more to me than that? Is there spirit? And what is the nature of the spirit if there is spirit? Is it born? Does it die? Can it decay? Is it perfect? So... How then? Well, the wise thing to do when you don't know yourself is to approach somebody who appears to know. And you ask them questions. 
So there are many, many, many books which have written down, this is what the human being is. It's been said over and over and over again by men and women who have displayed the most remarkable wisdom. So that's one thing. And then you need to find a system where this can be realized. And if you ask me, well, uh, you know, the school offers a system. There are many systems, but the school offers a system to come to that answer, that you can come to know the answer to this question. And when you do answer it, and you answer it fully, then you will never experience misery again. You'll only have one emotion forever, and that is unbridled joy. So it's worth looking at, as they say. Sounds good. Yes, maybe a last question. Some people find it very hard to make decisions. Why? Because they take responsibility. And this is only a humorous story, but a man who ran a hotel, and he's a makey-up story, it's not a real story, but he said to me about certain types of employees that he had observed. He said, for example, you get this guy, and he comes into the kitchens, and he works hard at scrubbing the pots and the pans, so you decide to promote him because he looks like he's got energy and enthusiasm and capacity. So he said, so you put him in charge of the potatoes. And what you tell him is, you need to separate them. The little ones are going to be the baby roast. The middle ones are going to be boiled. And the large ones are going to be mashed. And then the next day, he resigns from the job. And you ask him why. He says, decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> Do not take on the burden. We're always trying to control the outcome. And we feel responsible for the outcome. This is not your creation. You're not the creator. You're not running the show. You're not responsible. You're not asked to take responsibility. You've been invited to a party. You've been asked to enjoy it. It's been run on your behalf. This whole show of well, this great universe is a party in your honor. And all you have to do is turn up and enjoy yourself. That's all you have to do. It's just a game. We're all taking it too seriously. You say, did you ever get these board games when you were a child in your house? If you obey the rules and you treat it as a game, everybody gets immense satisfaction from a little board game. But you know what normally happens, you know, that your father or your mother explains the rules. You say to children, I just play away. And then you go, you, you go into the kitchen and pour yourself a brandy or whatever. And within 15 minutes, there's screams. Now, there are two reasons why the screams arise. Somebody has cheated or somebody's taking it too seriously. They are the two causes 
for something which is designed for enjoyment turning into misery. Let's leave out cheating. The other one is taking it too seriously. It's just a game. Life is to be enjoyed. You don't own anything. You come into this world with nothing and you go out with nothing. You're meant to enjoy it while you have it. When you're on the beach, play. Do not cry when you have to go home. When it's time to go home, be satisfied with the amount of play you've had on the beach. Now you're going to be able to play somewhere else. This is the key to life. Stay light. Move easily in all that befalls you. Don't take responsibility in the sense of don't take the burden. The analogy that's used is that we are all people standing on a train holding our suitcases and burdened by the weight of the suitcases when we could put them down. The train will carry them for you. So, thank you very much.